You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, episode 46. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progress Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Uh, so on this podcast, uh, we're going to talk about PMS. Uh, this is something that we deal with, you know, quite often. You know, this is a maybe not a major disease necessarily, right? But this is a, certainly one of those things that uh, come up and affect uh, women's quality of life all the time. Yeah, we recently wrote a uh, blog post on tips to help with PMS, and we got a lot of really good feedback on it. So we thought we'd do a podcast on it so that you could listen to some of the tips that we talk about. Right, right. Uh, you know, because when you go to your gynecologist, unfortunately, or if you go to your you know primary care doctor, the only real option they're going to give you is just birth control, you know, to kind of control some of those symptoms, whether it's, you know, mood swings or acne or, you know, some of the other uh, female related problems that show up during PMS. And you, you and I really don't, we don't really think that's the best option. There's, you know, there's some better ways to deal with it. And if the birth control doesn't work, then what options do you have left at that point? And, you know, a lot of women aren't really comfortable talking to their gynecologist when they say PMS, you know, premenstrual syndrome. Sometimes gynecologists blow it off because, like you said, it's not a disease. PMS is not going to kill you, hopefully not the people around you. <laughs> but, right. but, you know, you're right. There's really not a lot of options, um, birth control pills. But granted, you know, PMS happens to women of all ages, of all different backgrounds, personal history, family history, or in their 40s. And the last thing you want to do is take birth control pills if there isn't a reason for it or you're, you know, after the age of 40. So I don't consider that really a good option. And a lot of times with PMS, it is a lot, you know, it's about the way the female hormones are interacting with each other. The last thing you want to do is throw more hormones on top of that. Yeah, right. Because the body isn't handling the hormones that it already has anyways. You throw an exogenous hormone on there. And honestly, that doesn't really solve anything. It just kind of creates another problem by you know, giving women birth control for, you know, for that reason. Now, birth control, again, it's kind of the lesser of several evils. You want to get pregnant. If you're using it for pregnancy prevention, the pill works very well. And if that's what you're using it for, I, I think that's fine. Um, you know, But if you're using it specifically for PMS or to control the symptoms of PMS, we're going to talk about today, there's some better options than that. Yeah. And some doctors will resort to give, you know, because they're really trying to help is antidepressants. I've had patients on antidepressants, on benzodiazepines. And the last thing you want to do is be, you know, medicated. Um, I've had some women because PMS can be very serious. It can affect not only female, but their family members and the people around them. I've had some women come to me, they're contemplating getting a hysterectomy and or a full hysterectomy to actually remove the ovaries at the same time because they just don't want to deal with the PMS anymore. Yeah. Now that seems a little bit extreme and, you know, to do a hysterectomy for that reason, in my opinion, just seems a little bit ridiculous. Um, but that's really the options. If birth control doesn't work and all the different varieties of birth control, you know, you try one that doesn't work, you try another, you try another, you try another, and then you're kind of left with not many options after that. Uh, and this is something that we do see quite often, even sometimes things that don't appear to be related to PMS 
If a woman is having a regular cycle, right, having a cycle every 28 to 32 days, uh, and she's having these kind of reoccurring chronic symptoms, guaranteed if you went back and look at her menstrual cycle, that those symptoms, whatever symptoms they might be, maybe it's migraines, maybe it's cramps, maybe it's bloating, maybe it's whatever, um, they're going to show up in that 7 to 10 day window before your period. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about. It's that it's the period of time, no pun intended, it's the, it's the time prior to menstruation is where most of these issues start to show up. And you're right. Most of them seem to start around seven days before the period. Some women, unfortunately, it can start 14 days before the period or even a little bit more than that. So, um, you know, a lot of times these symptoms, you know, so so broad that a lot, you know, people don't really realize that it might be hormonally based. You know, they're going to therapists, they're seeing coaches, they're, they're seeing a psychiatrist, they're seeing their GP, they're seeing, you know, they're seeing all these different practitioners trying to figure out why don't I feel well because a lot of times when people think of PMS, they think of somebody that's really moody and upset and, and you know, and acting behavior-wise, when really PMS also has a lot of physical symptoms as well, just like Dr. Mackey was saying, you know, with having migraines, hormonal migraines are huge with PMS. Um, so is bloating and constipation, gastrointestinal issues can be part of PMS. Um, acne, a lot of women get, which a lot of women know PMS, you can get a couple of pimples here and there, no big deal, but getting a lot of pimples or getting a lot of acne, that's a serious concern. Yeah, right. And, and uh, it, it's it's interesting, like you say, you you know, there's different apps out there where you can track, uh, maybe you have, you know, an old school way where you actually use like a paper calendar. Um, but we always encourage women to, you know, keep track because if something is showing up every basically, you know, two to two to three weeks, now, you know that it is somewhat hormonally driven. And if you look at, not that anybody would do this in their spare time, you know, right, but you and I've, you know, kind of obsessed, you know, with our, you know, training, obsessed about the female hormone cycle. And you realize what's happening on a 28 day or, a, you know, let's just, you know, round up to 30 days if the average female cycle is 30 days long. The monumental hormonal shift that is happening, uh, you know, every 30 days for a woman, the first half, so from day one of your period to day 14 is basically all estrogen, a woman ovulates, the second half is all progesterone, so there's this huge shift that happens, which basically is nothing more than a potential for lots of problems to, you know, to arise because of that big shift. Yeah, the shift between that progesterone entering the system right around, you know, supposedly day 14, that can create a cascade of the PMS symptoms from day 14 to their period. And then just on a side note, because of that hormonal imbalance, that can cause during the period, which, you know, is about day one to day five, a terrible period, you know, cramping, heavy, heavy bleeding. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why people want to have a hysterectomy or an ablation is because of the bleeding and the terrible cramping. So yeah, PMS, premenstrual syndrome, you're going to have the symptoms before the period, but the actual period itself can be really debilitating as well. Yeah. Uh, we've had people over the years too that even have to use like narcotic pain medication. Like they ha they can't go to work uh, because the cramps are so bad. They're like literally laid up in bed uh, because it's so debilitating. Uh, you know, the, obviously that, you know, that's going to affect work. It's going to affect productivity. It's going to make you it's going to make you feel uh, depressed. It's going to make you feel, you know, a lot of different emotional things are going to start to spiral off that because, you know, there's no there's no potential relief or you really don't know what options there are to you to resolve something like that. And maybe ibuprofen, you know, isn't strong enough or Motrin doesn't work. 
And in the mood, you know, just to get back to the mood surrounding, you know, PMS is I've had patients come in with their, you know, with their spouses, their husbands, their partners, and, you know, because it's concerning, you know, they're, I feel great for the first half of the month and then the second half of the month, I'm a totally different person. You know, I'm craving, I'm, I'm lots of sugar, I'm gaining weight, I, I can't stand to be around anybody and nobody can really stand to be around me. So, you know, there's a lot of issues going on around that. So in this, you know, in that blog that we wrote and also in the podcast here is we want to just, you know, lay down a few quick tips that you can do, you know, right this very moment in time to kind of help work on that PMS to get that hormonal balance because there's a lot of other factors revolving around it. People, of course, run to their gynecologist because everybody compartmentalizes medicine and says, well, if it's a hormone issue, then it's got to be a gynecologist issue. But in the whole realm of things is it encompasses a whole multitude of different issues that we can work on, which we're going to go over on how we can do that. Again, like you said, it, it it's perceived as a female hormone issue. That's how it manifests as a female hormone issue, but that's not always the the best and only way to address it. You know, there's some ways kind of indirectly that, you know, have a significant impact. Now, one thing we've talked about, and we're going to get into the tips here in a second, but kind of laying a foundation. Uh, now, granted, a lot of you have listened to other podcasts. So for sounding redundant or the not wanting to be redundant, if this is something you've heard on another podcast, we apologize. But if you're a new listener, um, you know, we're trying to, you know, get you to understand what's going on with your body. You know, we look at hormones because, uh, granted, that's our expertise. We're always dealing with you know hormones in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we look at hormones as being kind of the primary metabolic hormones, the hormones that your body can't live without: insulin, cortisol, thyroid. Uh, and then you have the secondary uh, sex hormones: estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and you know DHEA. Right? If we had to make a short list of each, you know that's how we would kind of separate them. Always the metabolic hormones, those primary hormones, always have an effect on the secondary hormones, not necessarily so much in reverse. The secondary hormones are there, but usually they're being manipulated by those more important metabolic hormones. Uh, so really, if you really boil it down, which we're going to get into here in a little bit, if you really boil down, you know, what is PMS? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a female hormone imbalance, but it's being caused by or being attributed to uh, some other kind of deeper down the stream problem or maybe up the stream problem. But now it manifests as, you know, this, these symptoms that show up every, you know, every two to three weeks. Exactly. Exactly. So you think the, you know, we had talked about a little bit earlier about the estrogen and progesterone being out of balance. And in particular, it's either the estrogen is too high. So there's some form of estrogen dominance or that progesterone is too low, which is also quote unquote estrogen dominance or progesterone insufficiency. So there's an issue between the estrogen and progesterone. And, and with some of our patients giving them progesterone and they're a good candidate for it, they do great. And when they feel better, they make different choices because it's kind of that chicken and the egg thing. But like Dr. Mackey's saying is what we can also do, which we also definitely want to encourage people to do is to go upstream to work on some of those metabolic hormones so that in the long run, it'll help balance that estrogen and progesterone down the road without actually having to take some kind of hormone. Yeah. And that, you know, it's, it's like you say, in the short term, the progesterone is kind of like a palliative. It kind of helps uh, soothe some of those symptoms relatively quickly. And it does a lot of times. And there's a variety of doses depending on the age and the situation. You know, some women can tolerate more, some women can tolerate less. Some women can't tolerate it all, right? You know, there's some women that just don't do well taking progesterone. Uh, and, and that is, you know, something that we're a little even confused why 
why there's not more progesterone given to women, right? Because it is such a simple, easy solution, not necessarily the commercial ones and certainly not the form that is found in birth control. The find, the kind of progesterone, which is not even progesterone, is called progestins. Uh, and there's a variety of different progestins out on the market, and, but all birth control has some form of progestin in it. Uh, and we don't really advocate that very much. We think that they're, you know, for one, they're very strong. They can create some side effects and we think there's a somewhat of a danger to them. Uh, just because just because they're not actually bioidentical progesterone. So your gynecologist might play it off that, you know, progestins are progesterone, even in the media, even in the research sometimes, you know, the progesterone and progestins are kind of played off as being the same thing, but they are chemically, you know, the chemical structure of them, they are completely different molecules. So therefore they're going to have a different effect on the body. Yeah. And they're, you know, the gynecologists are working in their wheelhouse. They're doing what they have accessible to them. But, and, and in some people, you know, it does work, but if before jumping to that higher level of intervention, you know, there's a lot of things we can do lifestyle wise in this moment, in this second in time, that is very easy. That doesn't cost any money that you can just implement and actually implement with your family members. Yeah. Now, when we're talking uh, the next, you know, tip on the on the list, uh, and this is one certainly more for the estrogen side for the most part, our standard American diet. There's lots of things uh, in our lifestyle that can basically kind of decrease liver function. You know, it is a good idea to make sure that your liver is always working well, uh, especially to clear out those, you know, those estrogen metabolites that can tend to build up, you know, month after month, you know, week after week, you know, making sure the liver is functioning at a, you know, at a tip top level. So that way you're not getting this constant hormonal stimulation all the time. Yeah, that's what, you know, that's the main, you know, one of the main jobs of the liver is to actually detoxify everything that goes into our body, that we eat, that we breathe, that our bodies make. And, and in particular, we make estrogen, which estrogen is the best hormone in the entire world. But at the same time, the liver has to metabolize that and turn it into metabolites. And if the liver is being a little bit burdened, it'll end up making a lot of estrogen metabolites, in particular, not to bore you with the chemistry, but 2-hydroxyestrone which is the one you don't want, and then to some extent, 4-hydroxyestrone. So when you're making a whole bunch of those metabolites, it puts a huge burden on the system, and that's where a lot of estrogen dominance comes from. So one of the, the biggest things we can do is just, even if your liver enzymes look great on your blood work and the doctor says, oh, your liver enzymes are great, you can still help your liver function better if you're experiencing PMS. Yeah, the liver has, uh, and this is a point of contention that you know gets misconstrued a lot. The liver has a, an amazing functional capacity, meaning that it can be burdened and damaged, and there can be a disease process, but it still keeps trugging along. Uh, so, what we're talking about, you know, improving liver function, doesn't mean that there's an actual disease. Although we've had lots of patients over the years that have signs of fatty liver disease. You know, which does show up sometimes either on a blood test or an ultrasound. Um, but we're talking about it just improving the function. Really what we mean by improving the function is improving. The, there's a very elaborate, we're not going to get into it right now because it's really complicated, but there's this elaborate enzyme network in your liver called the cytochrome P450 system. Uh, and that cytochrome P450 system, which is like there's 300 or so different enzymes, uh, people have a different, uh, maybe genetic predisposition on how effective 
those enzymes are detoxifying. Some people can tolerate lots of caffeine and alcohol. Their livers do just fine. Other people can't tolerate caffeine and alcohol at all and their livers don't do don't do well. So just a simple way to determine how how your liver is functioning is one, look at how much caffeine and alcohol you're consuming on a daily, weekly basis. Uh, that one cup of coffee every morning puts a, lots of burden on your liver. That glass of wine every night uh, or multiple times a week um, is going to put a burden on your liver. Therefore, then when it comes to detoxifying the estrogen metabolites, it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be as easy to do that. So yes, the, you know, looking at your caffeine intake, and looking at your alcohol intake, that's, you know, number one. But what a lot of people kind of forget is they're, you know, they're like, well, you know, I don't really drink alcohol, which is great, but they don't realize that soda that they're drinking, the sugar that they're drinking, that that's putting a huge burden on the liver. And I, and we do make a distinction between actual foods that are sugar and high fructose corn syrup, which is like hugely more toxic you know, than actual sugar. They're both not great, but high fructose corn syrup and fructose itself actually has to go through the liver. And that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on that liver to detoxify that. Yeah. And it, and high fructose corn syrup, as you mentioned, is a bona fide liver toxin. It has the same effect on the liver that alcohol does. It's not that sugar is going to make you gain weight or just that it's going to make you gain weight. It's going to damage your liver in the process, which then results in you gaining weight. And high fructose corn syrup is like a fat loss, you know, fast track, right? You know, you're, and it was always used to uh, think that because fructose isn't metabolized the same way that other sugars are, that it's actually more of a beneficial sugar. But that was kind of like a little bit of a sleight of hand. We'll talk more about that later when we get into fatty liver on another episode. Uh, but fructose, uh, it, it goes it gets metabolized in a different fashion. The liver has to take the brunt of that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's actually worse than other kinds of sugars in, in, in a, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so sugar in general, that includes uh, honey, that includes stevia, that includes agave. Agave nectar has become popular over the last few years. Sugar is sugar. Uh, your body has to deal with those things in the same way. And, and hence, it can have the same effect or the same result. There's no, unfortunately, there is really no natural sugar out there. They're all relatively the same thing. So that, you know, when we're talking about sugar, which even, not just, you know, sweets or desserts or, you know, tasty, you know, tasty cakes and cookies and ice cream and whatnot. But we're also talking about just things that convert into sugar or into glucose. And that leads us to our next tip, which is about balancing that sugar in insulin. Because it's not necessarily that sugar is so horrible. It's the effect it has on your body and basically the effect it has on your insulin production. Yeah. And, you know, the average American, now granted, this is data, you know, that's, you know, pr probably close to 20 years old now, but the average American consumes about 60 pounds of sugar a year. Uh, now that might be declining. Like I said, that data is probably 15 years old or, you know, almost 20 years old. So who knows where that number is now, if, it, if it's more or less, but think about that 60 pounds of sugar in, in one calendar year, you know, we wonder why where a lot of these problems are coming from. It, that's not to say that carbs are bad necessarily. We're saying sugar is bad, um, but also you mentioned about you know refined carbohydrates that basically turn into some of that sugar. Your body kind of processes that processes that the same way. So uh, that's not a new thing. That's you know obviously something that we all know, um, but it's sometimes hard, especially when these hormones are not in balance. Not abstaining or being able to abstain from those foods is where it becomes challenging, especially you throw some stress on top of that. And now your cortisol is rising all the time. Um, now it becomes really challenging to, you know, to, um, to control that through willpower. 
Yeah, so definitely trying to work on that balance between the the blood sugar, you know, the the foods that we're eating that's converting into glucose into our system, how that response is from insulin because of that glucose, so balancing the glucose and the insulin. And then like you had just mentioned, the cortisol, because cortisol is really the one that kind of is like jet fuel on the whole system because cortisol and insulin, that will cause you to gain weight. Cortisol and insulin are inflammatory. And then that also has that end result with affecting the imbalance between the progesterone and the estrogen. Yeah. And then that cycle just kind of spirals out of control and it just gets worse and worse over time. So things that raise your cortisol, excessive cardiovascular exercise, right? Not exercising too much. You're not, if you're gaining weight and you're trying to lose the weight, you're not going to exercise that weight off. Uh, So if you're exercising more than four times a week, you're not giving yourself adequate rest. And if your sleep is not very good as a result of that, um, you're basically, you know, you're kind of making the problem you're trying to solve worse um, by, you know, by doing that. So, and this is a situation or a, a problem that we, you know, talk with people all the time. Everyone is motivated to lose belly fat, lose weight, um, get into shape. And they're, you know, they're kind of doing it in some ways. Their strategy that they're employing, both dietary and exercise, is, uh, you know, they fall into that trap of eating less and exercising more. And all that does is create more of a hormonal divide. So yeah, definitely reducing your cortisol in any any way that you can. And, that, and by doing that, reducing your insulin. But to really keep those down does really depend on bringing down that sugar. So I know it's that chicken and the egg when you're PMSing, you really want to eat that sugar and nothing's going to keep you from it, even though that accelerates the entire system. So it's kind of, you know, that's where I think sometimes for our patients, bring employing the progesterone, employing some of the the um, tactics that we have to try to reduce down those cravings. But if you feel like, hey, you know, I think I can do this, you know, I think I can reduce down my sugar, that would make a huge impact on your PMS symptoms. Yeah, that's something in your control, right? It doesn't, it's not a prescription that you have to take. It's not, you know, even anything you really have to spend money on. You might might have to shop a little bit different. You might have to cook a little bit different. You might have to eat at different restaurants, but it does have a a major impact. A long time ago, uh, when I first, uh, when we first got into practice, this is way back in the early part of the 2000s, and I used to do a weight loss program for people. And uh, at this point, I hadn't, I didn't understand, but every single woman, uh, and I was using a ketogenic diet at the time, uh, every woman that, you know, and mostly it was women that uh, wanted to, of course, lose weight, uh, within the first cycle, the first PMS cycle of, of the diet program, their periods always got better. It always got better. Either it got lighter, it got you know less you know less blood clots, less cramping, less just less PMS in general. There's always a shift there, and it really it honestly it took me a long time to figure out why that was. Um, and it's the uh, impact that insulin has on estrogen. Uh, so, like I said, uh, doesn't cost any money. Just make some of these dietary change, balance out that you know insulin cortisol, and you know your PMS situation will definitely improve. And then another tip, and that a lot of people already know this and they go to their doctors and ask, is really check your thyroid function. You'd be surprised at how thyroid affects the female hormones because thyroid itself you know, has an effect in the entire system in the body, but it helps rein in some of the negative effects of estrogen. So if your thyroid's low, the estrogen tends to take off. There you have that estrogen dominance. Then that progesterone drops down and the PMS symptoms get 
hugely magnified not only the PMS symptoms, but like we had mentioned about the heavy periods and the cramping and, you know, all the other symptoms that go along with low thyroid. But sometimes people don't realize when they come in and we, and, you know, we're, I'm treating them for thyroid, they don't realize, oh my gosh, my periods got better. Oh my gosh, my PMS got better because it has a direct influence on it. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there, that's a really controversial idea, right? Because a gynecologist is never going to, unless you're TSH, your thyroid stimulating hormone, which is the number that most doctors screen for, if that number is not elevated, a greater than 4.5, uh, the higher the TSH, the lower the thyroid function. If that number is not elevated, your gynecologist is not going to give you any thyroid medication. Your endocrinologist or your primary care physician is not going to give you any thyroid medication because they don't understand the connection or they don't see it as you know as being beneficial. Where we give specifically for PMS, we give thyroid medication to people all the time because it completely, as we talked about earlier, those metabolic hormones and the secondary sex hormones the metabolic hormones always have an impact on those female hormones in a very positive way. Uh, so it reduces, you know, like you said, it reduces a lot of those symptoms, but that's, you know, that's kind of a taboo, you know, kind of a unconventional uh, approach that we do it because we see the positive results. You're not hurting anybody by doing it. You're helping them in a lot of ways. You're improving their energy, you're improving their mood and their cycles improve. I mean, uh, across the board, that seems like a pretty good deal to me. Um, but uh, like I said, don't go to your, you know, your endocrinologist, your gynecologist or your primary care and expect them to understand that you're taking a thyroid pill uh, or thyroid medication to improve your PMS. They don't, they don't think that way, but we think that way all the time, you know, and we've seen the positive results because, you know, it does work very well. Yeah. So finding a functional medicine doctor would probably understand this 100% about PMS and thyroid function. And as I mentioned, checking thyroid function, sure, if you have thyroid disease and your TSH is off the charts, then there's a whole other, it's not just PMS that you're dealing with, but actually checking the thyroid function. And there's lots of ways to balance someone's thyroid function, increase up their thyroid function, but not put them out of physiological range. You know, you're not turning off their own thyroid. If anything, you're trying to restore their own thyroid hormone and not just, but, and we do, like a, like Dr. Mackey said, we do different kinds of thyroid medications. We have lots of different supplements and, you know, we have lots of things to do for that thyroid function. Um, so definitely if you're working on your diet, you you feel like you're doing everything that you can do, you're working on the liver function, you're working on your stress, you're working on everything to help that PMS, but things just really aren't quite getting there, is actually doing a thyroid function test would probably be the next step. Yeah. And again, it's a very, conventionally, it's a very black and white issue. Either you have it or you don't, either you're hypothyroid or you're not. Um, but what we're trying to get across in the term is called subclinical hypothyroid, uh, where your numbers might not be abnormal necessarily. They might not be high or low. They're just, you know, kind of skewed. They just, you know, and we've looked at these kind of numbers many, many times. And one of them that we find to be the most important is a, what we call a free T3 level. Uh, and that one is a, you know, a very uh, common test for us, but not done necessarily that commonly. It's, uh, I, I'm sure you've noticed it too. You, you get uh, labs from other doctors and um, doctors are starting to do it more often. Um, but I don't think sometimes they even really know what to do with that number. They do it because their patient might be requested it, but they're not, you know, they're not really addressing that number very often. And we see it for women of all different ages, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. They're always on the low end of that reference range um, for their free T3. So trying to optimize that. Now, one thing that I 
mentioned just a second ago about exercise, when you fall into that trap of eating less and exercising more, you are basically decreasing that free T3 level. So make sure that your calories don't drop too low and make sure you're not over-exercising because that is a killer uh, for your for your thyroid function, which is why eventually the weight loss uh, that's what you're trying to do. The weight loss plateaus after you know somewhere between three to six months. You continue on that eat less, exercise more path, and eventually the body is going to put the brakes on. And now you're exacerbating that cortisol response and. You know, you're making it harder on yourself in the in the process. So, you know, one way to optimize thyroid is making sure that exercise is not too intense or too frequent. Um, that's why we always, uh, you know, like weight training as being the the base of that. You're not going to burn it off. You know, you're not going to burn those calories off by doing some kind of spin class or some kind of cardio class, uh, and you will maintain thyroid function over time that way. And I know that thyroid function part is a whole nother, you know, episode, which I think we've done an episode on thyroid function. And I think there's a blog also that we've done on thyroid function. So um, definitely if this is something that you're interested in, like, you know, like you really feel like maybe your thyroid function's off or that PMS is is being, you know, just isn't getting better and that maybe your free three free T3 is low is you can, um, we'll definitely in the show notes, put a link to the blog and the, um, that other podcast, if you're interested in looking into this a little bit more or listening about it. Yeah. And this is something that comes up all the time. So uh, we have done quite a few on thyroid, you know, specifically, and, you know, we've done one on medication, we've done one on Hashimoto's, you know, so there's quite a few, we'll put those links in the show notes so you can find them, uh, you know, fairly easy. So we've kind of mentioned stress a little bit, you know, but there is this very specific process in the body called the pregnenolone steel. Uh, and pregnenolone is a hormone, they call it the mother hormone. Uh, so all of your sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, and pregnenolone are all made from cholesterol, uh, which cholesterol, as a lot of us are aware, kind of gets vilified sometimes as being a bad thing. But really, cholesterol is what makes all those sex hormones, makes them those hormones steroids. Uh, and cortisol is part of that steroid mix. Uh, and pregnenolone, when your body is under lots of stress for whatever reason, life, you know, too much exercise, not enough sleep. Now your body will basically redirect that pregnenolone into making more cortisol because it can't live without it. And it sacrifices your progesterone. And now you're, you know, now you're having less progesterone than your body needs and relatively more estrogen. Uh, you know, and as that stress continues, that divide kind of gets worse and worse and your symptoms can get worse and worse accordingly. Which is another one of our tips, which is stress, trying to reduce down stress because stress raises up cortisol, whether it's watching the news because, you know, or watching something that's scary, that's going to raise up your cortisol. Having a fight with a family member is going to raise up your cortisol. Any Having that intense cardiovascular exercise is going to raise up that cortisol. So doing whatever measures you can to reduce your stress and your daily lifestyle is a huge way to reduce down cortisol, which then helps reduce down the impact of insulin, which then can help with that estrogen and progesterone balance. I, we have so many women that come see us that are stressed out to no end. And of course, they're going to have hormonal issues. Of course, they're going to have PMS and symptoms of too much estrogen and symptoms of too little progesterone. And it's really, you know, going back to the, the beginning of it really has to do with that stress that they're under. 
Yeah, and and this again, as we talked about earlier, that it's not really PMS in general is not really looked at that way. Uh, you know, it's not viewed in the way we just described it being a you know basically a cortisol slash insulin problem. It's not really looked at in that in that context. That's why just giving someone birth control really doesn't you know solve the problem all that well. It might have an impact on your symptoms. It might control some of them, um, but. You know, it's just a kind of a glorified Band-Aid that doesn't bring someone literally back back to balance the way that they would like to be. Uh, and then there's not the need for that, you know, that exogenous hormone that way. So uh, this is something, I don't know, I mean, this comes up all the time, over and over and over. Almost every single woman, probably, you know, 9 out of 10 or 99 out of 100, there's going to be some level of PMS symptoms going on there for menstruating women. Some of them just think that it's normal. Some of them think their symptoms are just completely... They just have to accept it because that's just the way that it is because maybe their mom was that way, their grandma was that way, their sisters or their aunts were that way, and that's just the way their family is. But there might, that might mean there might be some predisposition, but it doesn't mean that you have to suffer with some of the some of the symptoms that come up every month. No, and, and I know with stress, we all can't get rid of stress. We all have life stressors. So whatever you can do to reduce down your stress is the number one thing you can do. Like we, like Dr. Mackey had said is don't do an intense cardiovascular workout because it's going to raise up your cortisol. So you can reduce that stress down really easy by switching to resistance training weights or walking. You know, you can, you can reduce that stress down really easily. Sure. You can't reduce family stress down sometimes, you know, that depends on boundaries and all that, all that jazz, but you know, you can, you can do your best because the body cannot differentiate between a, you know, a pack of wolves chasing you down and wanting to eat you. And you've got a bunch of commitments that you wish you hadn't taken on, or you're doing, you know, five spin classes a week. The body doesn't understand that. It just wants to know why haven't these predators eaten you? Because if a predator is going to chase me, it's going to catch me in either 15 seconds or I get away, not 15 minutes, 15 hours, 15 weeks of continuous stress. So when the body, and you think about with PMS, if the body thinks there is some external factor out there that is you know, threatening my my body, it's going to turn off reproduction because it's very hard for you know a female to you know to reproduce and gestate for nine months and then raise young. It's different for fellas, but for women, yeah, the body will just turn off that reproduction, drop the progesterone, maybe even halt the ovulation. Then it makes a PMS that much more worse when really there wasn't any wild pack of wolves chasing me. Yeah, right. And then you get into, you know, how that can lead into fertility problems. And, you know, that is a whole nother conversation we'll get into later. But definitely we have a, I wouldn't say epidemic, but we certainly have a, you know, a lot, there's a lot of fertility issues across the country and around the world. Uh, and what we're talking about is kind of, you know, is kind of contributing to that. So, uh, well, the next one then uh, is one that we put a lot of attention towards um, just because of what we just talked about stress is uh, improving sleep quality. It is critically important. Everything kind of stems off of that. If weight loss is your goal, and a lot of people we talk with, weight loss is their goal, uh, we encourage in the beginning to focus more on sleep quality than exercise. A diet, of course, is important, but if you're not sleeping well at night you, and then you're exercising on top of that, that's where you're kind of making it worse. So put the exercise to the side until your sleep quality is really good because that also kind of helps minimize that cortisol burden over time and you're going to have better results in the long run. I had a patient not that long ago, I asked her about her sleep and she called it a necessary evil. 
because, you know, we have to have it, but, you know, it takes up a lot of our time because, of course, we only have 24 hours in a day. And I was thinking, no, no, no. I mean, sleep is not a necessary evil. Sleep is important. Sleep is, everybody knows we all need to sleep, but they don't realize the impact it has on our, you know, on our biology, on our biochemistry, on our brain, on our heart, on, you know, like Dr. Mackey said, on our waistline. So it has a huge impact on our metabolic hormones and our female hormones. So if, and I've only met a handful of people that can actually get away with five hours a night. And trust me, that's not normal. We want to get a good, you know, seven, if not, you know, try to get as close to eight hours of sleep as we can. Now, some people will tell, and just like Dr. Mackey will will um, attest to, is a lot of women say, I've got eight hours, but I don't sleep them because not everybody can sleep well because of the way their hormones are interacting. So we do have a um, a blog post on, and I think we also have a couple of podcasts on sleep that we can put in the show notes as well. Yeah, you know these are you know these are issues that come up all the time, uh, and once a woman you know crosses that magical age of forty, all of a sudden they just stop sleeping. You know, as those hormones begin to start declining, and then now you have more relatively more cortisol. There's not really that balance or the buffer anymore of the female hormones. Now sleep gets disrupted. The stress level is usually higher when a woman's got you know a whole house full of kids and she's working full time and all those things uh, that contribute to that. And now she's not able to sleep at all, you know, or she's got to go through these major uh, measures to be able to get a good night's rest. So um, we put a lot of em- emphasis in the beginning on getting people to sleep because everything, mood, energy, weight, all of that will stem off of that is, is once someone is sleeping well on a nightly basis. And then the last one is one that a lot of people complain about that even though we're talking about PMS, but this is one thing when someone comes in about PMS that they also complain about at the same time is their belly fat. And so we talk about, you know, working on if you can reduce down the belly fat, because that's what, I mean, people talk about weight gain, but I say, well, where is the weight gain? They will always say, well, normally I gain weight in my hips and thighs, but lately it's the stomach. I've never had a gut before. That weight in the stomach is a lot different than just gaining weight all over through the body. It actually, the stomach fat, the adipose tissues are way more metabolic and volatile than just your average fat cell because fat cells actually secrete hormones and proteins and all sorts of things. So reducing that belly fat will absolutely help with the PMS symptoms. They go hand in hand. Yeah, and that weight that you know women typically gender-wise don't usually put weight around the middle. Men men certainly do. That's where men, you know, deposit belly fat. But women as you said, usually put it around the hips and thighs. When it's uh, when women start developing the spare tire, right? The weight around the middle that they don't want, that is always cortisol-driven weight gain. Uh, so if you've been exercising, let's say for 6 months straight and your weight is going up, you know, or you're putting more weight around the middle, that is an indication that whatever whatever strategy you're employing at that point is not working. You know, there's too much cortisol. Indirectly, here's what happens. So intense cardiovascular exercise, take your pick. There's lots of boot camps and and programs out there. Your cortisol goes up. Let's say it's in the morning, you haven't eaten anything, uh, empty stomach, your cortisol goes up. Cortisol is a very powerful hormone that tells the liver to raise blood sugar by a process called gluconeogenesis. And so now you haven't eaten anything, your blood sugar goes up because your cortisol is telling your liver to make blood sugar that you don't really need. And now your insulin has to respond to the blood sugar. Now your insulin goes up and now it has all this extra energy that it doesn't need, that it really doesn't need at the moment. And now your body has to basically store it 
you know, by way of insulin, and it ends up putting it around the midsection, you know, almost like it was the five alarm fire weight gain. Your body is putting it there almost like an emergency state because there's really high level of cortisol. So, you know, granted, you do when it comes to exercise specifically, you know, do not feel like you have to completely exhaust yourself because really you want to be gentle on that cortisol because otherwise that problem gets worse. Same thing happens if you're not sleeping, as we just mentioned. If you're not sleeping, that means your cortisol is elevated and you're going to put that weight around the middle as well. And just on a quick little side note is, as I'd mentioned, fat cells are actually their own endocrine gland. They secrete hormones and proteins and they, you know, they have little, it's almost like a gland itself is your fat tissue will secrete estrone, which estrone is a form of estrogen that we make. And if you have a, especially belly fat, that'll put you at higher levels of estrone. And then that puts you more at an estrogen dominance. And there you are down the rabbit's hole with the PMS symptoms. Yeah, yeah, and it just you know, and it just kind of spirals out of control like that because when it's a hormone problem like that, and especially those specific hormone problems, those metabolic hormones, once they get going in that direction, uh, you know, it starts kind of wreaking havoc on our bodies, uh, and now all of a sudden we get all these symptoms that show up that you know a lot of times conventionally no one really knows what to do with. Unfortunately, there is no medications that someone can take for their insulin and their cortisol. Those are lifestyle hormones, uh, and that's why they get kind of dismissed and kind of ignored so to speak, conventionally, because there's no medications you can necessarily take for them. There's a few, of course, diabetes medications that have an effect on blood sugar, but not necessarily have a direct effect on insulin. And there's nothing out there prescription-wise that will lower cortisol. Um, those are really hard problems to solve. And it, you know, everything we're talking about, some of these tips, they all all road leads back to that balance, you know, for the most part. So you know, hopefully this has been at least somewhat enlightening, giving you a little bit of a broader perspective of where some of those PMS symptoms might be coming from. So a lot of people ask at this point, well, where do I start? Where's a good place to start? I understand I want to cut back on the sugar. I understand I want to sleep better. I want to work on my liver function. I want to help that those PMS symptoms. But and the tips make sense. I'm sure all of you have heard probably a lot of these tips that we talked about, but it's really hard to implement them. And that's usually the first question people will say, well, I need help to, you know, to kind of carry this out. Yeah, right. The execution, you know, the, the tips are one thing, but the executing them is, you know, is the challenging part because it can be a little overwhelming uh, because you're not, there's lots of information out there. You know, that's the blessing and the curse of the internet. There's lots of information at your fingertips, but it's really hard to kind of decipher and determine um, what's the best thing for you as an individual. What's worked for one might not work for the next, and just trying to organize all that can be challenging. So with that said, like Dr. Mackey went on about, there's lots of information out there, lots of books and lots of internet things. We have one that we would love to give you that for free that we put together that talks about ways to basically reduce down that insulin, reduce down that cortisol, but not reduce your calories so that we can help work on the liver function, help work on the belly fat, help work on that hormonal response to inevitably lead down the road to help with your PMS symptoms. Yeah, so it's been an evolving kind of dietary philosophy, one that is actually pretty popular right now, you know, for a variety of reasons. We kind of combine a few different philosophies into one uh, called the Keto Carb Cycling Program. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, previous listeners have probably heard us talk about it before. You know, we're proud of it. Uh, we think that it, you know, that it... Um, it does what it's supposed to. Is it easy? It can be, especially if you kind of break it up into phases, you know, where you're not necessarily trying to dive into the full thing all at once. If you're just getting started on a process like that, just 
uh, start very simply, make some modest changes, which the document, uh, when you download it, will kind of show you. Uh, and then if you're trying to lose maybe that last few, you know, five to 15 pounds, that's where things get more complicated. If you're trying to lose 100 pounds, the same strategy that allowed you to lose 100 pounds is not going to be the same strategy that allows you to lose 10 or 15 pounds. You know, you have to kind of modify things, you know, over time. Um, but from a PMS perspective, you know, certainly if just a little bit of balance to insulin and cortisol, and now a lot of those PMS symptoms can be alleviated. So you go to the website, it's very easy to find progressive health.com you'll find the you know the link that takes you to the download for the you know kccp uh keto carb cycling the acronym is kccp uh and uh, you know get started let us know if you have any questions with that you know we're um we're here to support and help we want everyone to have you know uh, as much success as possible uh and this is uh you know this is an easy way to get get you started yeah, definitely. You know, um, like we said, it, it helps with the belly fat. It helps with weight loss. But usually that if you're, you know, from the hormonal perspective, especially with PMS, the first month, you don't notice quite as much change because you're going to have a little withdrawal from changing up your, you know, re, re, for reducing down cortisol, reducing down insulin, balancing that glucose. There's going to be a little bit of withdrawal. So usually in that first cycle that you have, you won't notice as much difference, but the second cycle, the mood is better. So a lot of times the PMS and mood issues are better. And then it takes about the third or the fourth cycle for really the periods not to be quite as heavy. I mean, everybody's different with their genetics, but usually that third, especially that fourth cycle is the periods aren't quite so heavy and they're not nearly as crampy as they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. So don't expect much. The first one, there might not be, there might be minimal change at that point, but certainly by that third or fourth one, it's sometimes remarkable, you know, the difference. Uh, and if your PMS is really bad, then you might want to kind of dive right into the, you know, KCCP because that, as I said earlier, you know, the KCCP, the K part is the ketogenic uh, side of it. And I've seen, you know, seen some pretty amazing uh, PMS transformations by, you know, employing a ketogenic diet. Now, sometimes people don't respond that well to a ketogenic diet in the beginning, you know, with the proverbial keto flu. And in my opinion, the ones that don't do well uh, initially on the, on the KCCP or a ketogenic diet in general are the ones that absolutely need to do that kind of a diet. Okay, so if you can't do it full blown right off the bat, keep working towards that uh, because the inability ketosis is not you know a fad. Ketosis is a very necessary survival mechanism that our bodies have developed over the last you know you know hundred thousand years or the last million years or whatever it is. Uh, so everyone, every human is able to go into ketosis. Every human is uh, biologically programmed to do that because it's how our body survives. Some do better than others. And if you're one of those that don't do all that well, um, that means your body is not great at burning fat effectively. So practicing and getting a little bit better at that so your body is more efficient at burning fat will indirectly, like we've been talking about this entire time, will improve that insulin cortisol balance and now make your PMS better as a result. So uh, it seems like a roundabout sort of way, but it is very effective and it will and it will work for you. So um, good luck. And uh, anything else to add, Dr. Davidson? No, no. I think this was great. Okay. Uh, until next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.